summer can be a time of, of traveling, uh, taking vacations, a lot of weddings happen during the summer. My wife and I tend, have had a lot of weddings this summer. We're still in that age range where everybody's getting married, and a lot of our weddings have been weddings that we've been in back in Iowa, so we've been taking trips back to Iowa uh, to spend with family and friends and celebrate weddings. And um, on trips back to Iowa, um, sometimes we have to take that pit stop because we get hungry. We've, we've tried to make it in one, one shot. It's about six hours. It doesn't always happen. Uh, we usually have to at least take one stop. But sometimes we get hungry and we see that Culver's sign uh, as, as we're heading back. We, we seem to always see it in Geneseo right before the Iowa border. And uh, it's those cheese curds and, and the, uh, the ice cream that always get us. But uh, we need to take that stop and, and take that break. And so the story that we're talking about today, we see Jesus traveling um, and taking a break and taking a rest. And uh, we're going to be talking about uh, the story of Jesus meeting with the Samaritan woman. So if you would, uh, if you have a Bible, turn it uh, to John 4. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, if you have a few Bibles, go ahead and, and grab one from somebody beside you. We're going to turn to John 4. In this, in this story, we see Jesus in full-time ministry. Um, he has been baptized. He has been tempted by the devil, um, was without sin. We see Jesus going to celebrate Passover in Jerusalem. He's begun to do miracles, begun to reveal who he is as the Messiah. Um, and as he's performed those miracles, now he's been going out. His disciples have been baptizing people who have been repenting. So we see Jesus in full-time ministry. And after the Passover, he is taking a trip from Jerusalem, and he's going north, and he's traveling through Samaria and going north to Galilee. So we're looking this morning at John 4, 16 through 26. Jesus said to her, go, call your husband and com come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. This is the word of the Lord. So in this story, as Jesus is approaching this woman and having this conversation on what true worship is, we see two attributes of who God is, who Jesus was. One of them, he was, he was fully man. He came in flesh and dwelled as we do, in a human body. We see that uh, in the start of this story, if we back up the start of John 4, that Jesus is thirsty. So he has experienced the same things that we experienced physically. We also see Jesus as fully God, knowing this woman's heart, knowing the desires of her heart, knowing her sin, knowing every thought. And these are very important to the foundation of our, our understanding of, 
of who Jesus is and who God is. If Jesus uh, was not fully, fully God, he could not have lived a perfect life and provided a sacrifice that actually atoned for our sins. Without being God, he would have been man, and scriptures tell us that he was perfect. So if he was not God and if he was perfect, then there is a way to be righteous apart from God. But we also see Jesus as fully man. And this is a great picture of God's grace, that God dwells with us, that he knows us, that he's a personal God. So this is foundation to our, foundational to our understanding of who Jesus is. We also see uh, the Samaritan woman. And the Samaritans and the Jews despised each other. They had had a long history of, of this uh, uh, despise that they had for each other. As we see, if we take a step back in the history of the, of the Jewish nation, they had wandered in the desert for um, a long time, for 40 years, and then come in, came into the land that God had, had, had brought them to. And they settled the land, but they didn't fully worship God, and they worshiped the idols of the, the nations around them. And the king of Assyria came, conquered the, the northern tribes of Israel, called Samaria, Samaria took the, uh, the tribes into exile, and took other nations and brought them in. And the Samaritan nation that we're seeing today, this woman coming out of, is really um, a Jewish uh, mixed nation. So it's people that were half Jewish, half um, Gentile. So for Jesus to approach this woman, this would have been defilement for him. As he asks her for a drink of water um, to use the utensils that she had had because he had not brought any. This would have been defilement uh, for for a Jew. But Jesus crosses that line and enters into a conversation with her. So if you're, if you're taking notes, some good background on, on the history of who the Samaritans were. 2 Kings 17 and Ezra 4 are two uh, foundational uh, scriptures that talk about who, uh, who the Samaritans were. So as we take a look back in, in how Jesus engages her, he, he starts in this discussion on offering her living water. And I don't know if you've ever been in a conversation with someone where you think you're talking about the same thing, but you're, you're really on two different levels, talking about two different things. That can be very confusing. Um, we see Jesus offering living water. This living water is essentially salvation, the salvation that had been prophesied in the Old Testament. And um, if we want to take a look back at, at what this living water uh, had been prophesied about, Let's, let's turn back uh, with me. Isaiah 44. This is the living water that Jesus has now come to provide. Isaiah 44. We've talked about this scripture in this, in this series that we're in right now on who the Holy Spirit is. So Isaiah 44, 1 through 4. But now hear, O Jacob, my servant, Israel, whom I have chosen... Thus says the Lord who made you, who formed you from the womb and will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. They shall spring up among the grass like willows by flowing streams. So Jesus has now come to offer this living water. And we see this living water as being something, he says, that will well up in, inside her to eternal life. It, it, the nature of this water is also such that it will make her not to thirst anymore. 
And, and the woman's understanding of, of Jesus talking about this living water is that she, she sees it as something physical. She, she doesn't quite grasp what he's trying to say. And then he gets personal. So he says, go call your husband and come here. Um, this idea that Jesus was fully God is important to us. And as, as we see, he knows her heart. He knows where her heart is and where she's trying to get fulfillment in life. So for her, it was in relationships. Um, we see her trying to run away from Jesus' question. When he asks if she has a husband, she says, I don't. And then he says, you're right, because you've had five husbands, and the, the man you're with right now is not your husband. Do we understand that, that God knows every word before it comes out of our mouth, that he knows every thought, um, every idle thought. As we read scripture like this, it's easy to, uh, to say, why didn't she know this was Jesus? Or, for example, when Jesus approaches Nicodemus, to say, why didn't they get it? But I, we, have to, we have to put ourselves in this scripture, uh, in the shoes of this Samaritan woman. We are all thirsty. We are all seeking to fulfill something in our lives, and we all fill it, fill our lives with something. And I think we do a pretty good job of looking good on the outside, uh, looking good in front of each other. When, when somebody asks us how you're doing, we normally say, I'm, I'm doing good. But the truth is, is that we cannot hide from God, that he knows our hearts. So, are you like this woman uh, who tries, you try to maybe fill your life up with relationships? Maybe it's the, your desire to be, to be married, that you think that if you're married, that will give you fulfillment, that will give you joy, that will give you security. Maybe you are trying to fulfill sexual desires outside of the God-ordained relationship where that's supposed to happen. Idols can, can, be, can come from bad things in life. They can also come from good things. But at the heart of what idols cause us to do are to love them, to trust them, to obey them, to worship them above God. So all of our sin, any sin, essentially is idol worship. Um, as we put something above God, put our needs, put our desires above what God desires for us. So maybe, maybe for you it isn't relationships. Maybe it's your image. Maybe your heart uh, and the thoughts that go through your mind are, if I could just lose 10 pounds, I could fit into those jeans and be happy. If I could just succeed and um, put on an outer um, character, that shows success to other people. My image is more important to me than God. You will maybe tell lies to look good in front of people, um, build yourself up in front of others. Our image sometimes can be a place of idol uh, worship. Maybe it's your job, and maybe the desires of your heart is for that next promotion. Your desires of your heart are to get praise from others when you do a good job. And you're willing 
to disobey God in order to get that success, in order to get that next job, or in order to get that praise. You're willing to step on other people. You're willing to talk behind people's back or put people down so that you look better. Ultimately, we rest our hopes in this life on whatever we feel will give us success, will give us security, will give us happiness. For many of us, the truth is that money is an idol. It can be an idol so that we can purchase things, so that we can have things for ourselves that give us meaning. And we easily write that idol off because we look at other people around us and we say, we compare ourselves to them and we say, well, they, they don't, they have, more than, they have more than me. I'm not as bad as that person. When in truth, we seek to fill ourselves up with the, the things that money can provide. Maybe for you, it's your family or your children. Again, idols can be good things that we exalt above God. So maybe where your hope is in having kids. Maybe you're married and and you don't have kids and you're saying, if we have kids, we would just be happy. That would make me happy. Maybe your hope is in your family. Maybe your hope is in your husband and wife. I don't know your hearts. I can't see your hearts. But the desires of your heart right now are open to God. And ultimately... Anything put above God does not satisfy. This text that we're reading is about worship. And all of those things as we place before God cannot satisfy us. We see in verse 22, uh, as the woman responds to Jesus, as he, as he has her um, and has convicted her, She still kind of runs from him. The woman says in 19, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. So she is convicted of her sin, and Jesus is revealing himself to her. She says, you're a prophet. So she realizes that, that there's something unique about who Jesus is, but yet she still runs from uh, her conviction. And she brings up this question about worship. So as she's trying to run away from Jesus, she's running right into the heart of, 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 of the problem, which is her worship. And that she is trying to fill herself up with things that will never satisfy. So as we talk about what worship is, it is not just Sunday morning. It is not just coming to church, being involved in a Bible study, reading God's word. It is much more than that. It is, it is where our hearts put value and worth in this life? Is it on God or is it on other things above God? So there's one application that I want to pull out of this before we move on. And as a church, as we see Jesus caring for this woman, he's more concerned with her spiritual well-being than her physical well-being. So as we care for each other, we bring about the kingdom of God by caring for each other physically. As we love the community that God has placed us in and do things to fulfill the needs of the community physically, we can bring about the kingdom of God. But do we neglect each other's spiritual care? Jesus certainly cared for people physically, healing their wounds, feeding them. But what is more important to Jesus, what, it, what should be more important to us, is our own spiritual well-being and the spiritual well-being of the community that we're in. So as we go and care for each other, do we also ask, not just how are you doing, but how are you really doing? 
What areas in your life are you seeing fruit? And what areas in your life are you failing? So I think one thing we need, we need to take out of this is that we need to ask those questions of each other. And we need to care about each other, not only physically, but also spiritually. So then we move on. Verse 23. Jesus says, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in, tr- in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So there's three aspects to worshiping in the spirit that I want to touch on. We see Jesus talking about worship not as being something on the outside. So number one, worship in and of itself cannot be seen. There is nothing essentially physical outward to worship. Now, this is something that I've I've struggled with as I've been sitting in it because worship certainly is seen. Acts of worship can be seen, but essentially they are not necessarily seen. So worshiping God in spirit is, is something in the heart. Worship is not necessarily singing. Worship is not necessarily being involved in a Bible study. Worship is not necessarily believing in God. Worship is not going to a Christian school. Worship is not being a theology major. Worship is not uh, working in a Christian setting. We see Jesus talking about worship as being something internal, something um, that happens inside in our spirit. So number one, worship cannot be seen. Uh, We see Jesus talking about the Pharisees, that Uh, They were whitewashed tombs on the outside. I'm sure there were people in that day that looked at the Pharisees and said, these are men of God. Look at all the things they do. They followed the law that God had given to Moses. But on the inside, they were whitewashed tombs. Jesus teaches us in the scriptures about people that will come to him on the last day saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons and do all these great things? Jesus says, I do not, I never knew you. So worship, true worship, will show itself outwardly. However, the heart of worship is what's inside. So worship cannot necessarily be seen. Worship is also God-centered. It is not man-centered. A common text that we've talked about a few times is Ezekiel 36. So if you could turn with me uh, back to the Old Testament, Ezekiel 36. This verse talks about Again, the promise of God to pour out his spirit to give us new hearts and to make us alive to him. So Ezekiel 36. Start with me on verse 24. God prophesied through Ezekiel, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle you with clean water. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey me. So Jesus is fulfilling this. He is offering her this living water, this life, this new heart. And in this verse, we see 
everything focused on God. He says, I will take you from the nations. I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart, and I will put my spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone. His purpose for doing that was not just so that we could live a happy life or be at peace with God. His primary, primary purpose was his own glory. Back up with me to verse 22 in that same chapter. Therefore, say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations. So God making us alive to himself was not primarily for us. It was primarily so that he would receive glory. At the end, back to John 4. Right before this main text that we're looking at, the woman's response to this living water, she, she kind of starts to understand it. She says, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she's kind of starting to break down saying, okay, Jesus, I want this water, but it's still about something physically, and it's about something for her. So what's your motivation for coming to church? What's your motivation to worship? Is it what you get out of it? Is it so that you can keep score and, and give yourself points in God's eyes? Do you come to worship and, and want to worship in a certain way because you like it that way? Is your worship, worship centered around yourself and what you can get out of it? When you serve in children's ministry, uh, when you uh, take food to the poor, when you help people out, is it, is it so that you can look at yourself and say, I did a good job? Or is it to give glory to God's name? We see the purpose upon God pouring out his spirit mainly focused on his namesake. So my wife Sydney and I have been reading through a book. It's called, uh, it's called Radical by David Platt. And it talks basically about the, the teachings of Jesus and are we truly living out life based on what, what Jesus has said? Or do we take certain things and follow them while other things we forget? And he's talking about how we twist sometimes the teachings of Jesus. And I want to read a section from this. We are giving into the dangerous temptation to take the Jesus of the Bible and twist him into a version of Jesus we are more comfortable with. A nice, middle-class, American Jesus. A Jesus who doesn't mind materialism, who would never call us to give away everything we have. A Jesus who would not expect us to forsake our closest relationships so that he receives all our affection. A Jesus who is fine with nominal devotion that does not infringe on our comforts because, after all, he loves us just as we are. A Jesus who wants us to be balanced, who wants us to avoid dangerous extremes, and who, for that matter, wants us to avoid danger altogether. A Jesus who brings us comfort and prosperity as we live out our Christian spin on the American dream. But do you and I realize what we are doing at this point? We are molding Jesus into our image. He is beginning to look a lot like us, because, after all, that is whom we are most comfortable with. And the danger now is that when we gather in our church buildings to sing and lift up our hands in worship, we may not actually be worshiping the Jesus of the Bible. Instead, we may be worshiping ourselves. So as Jesus makes us alive by pouring out his spirit on us, it's not for us and what we get out of it. 
We don't get to make the rules. It's about God and, and giving glory back to him. Thirdly, on, on worshiping in the Spirit, worshiping in the Spirit is initiated by God, by his Holy Spirit. It's not something we do. And it happens when we realize that we have sinned before a God that is perfect and holy. And we cannot have life with him unless there is a sacrifice, unless those sins are paid for. And when we realize that Jesus came as a perfect, lived a perfect life as a human, but yet was fully God. And that he died on the cross for our sins, accomplishing what we could not accomplish on our own. It is in hearing that, having the Holy Spirit change our hearts that we believe and we repent and then we can worship in truth and spirit and have that life that is promised in Romans Paul talks about this and he says essentially this is in Romans 9 where he's talking about just being born from Abraham does not necessarily make you a child of God but it depends upon God's promise and upon God's choice and he says in, in Romans 9.14, he said, What shall we say then? Is there any injustice on God's part in choosing some and in not choosing others? Is there any injustice on God's part? By no means, he says. For God said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And the only way to understand that as being fair and just is to understand the weight of our sin and our sinful nature. The fact that if God does not come into your heart and change it, you'll never be a worshiper of him. That your nature, above all things, is sinful. And if God had not come in and changed your heart or does not come in and change your heart, you will never choose to follow him. And in all ways, if God had left us to our own choosing, we would always choose the path of sin. So it takes God to move in our hearts to make us worshipers of him. And it's through his choice that we are made worshipers, not our own. Jesus continues to, to talk about the other essential aspect of worshiping, and that is in truth. The ultimate truth starts with having a right understanding of who God is. So where is your source of truth? Jesus said in his prayer in the garden before he uh, went to die, he prayed to God for the disciples. He said, sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. Is the truth your ultimate, is the Bible your ultimate source of truth? Where do you look for truth? Is the Bible just something you can go to when you're in trouble or you're having tough times for hope? Or is it something that guides you in every area of your life? And as Paul wrote uh, Timothy, where he says, uh, all of Scripture is God-breathed, from Genesis to Revelation. All of Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Or do you take certain aspects of the Bible and say, this is what I'm going to build my life on, but this other aspect is not true or not important? And do you look to that truth for every, uh, for every decision you have to make in life? Do you look to yourself for ultimate truth? saying, I have my truth, you might have your truth, but I, I have my truth, and, and, and it's better than yours. All of Scripture is meant to point us to Christ. And as we see later on in this story, 
as we skip ahead, the Samaritan woman is convicted. She goes back and, and after Jesus says, I who speak to you am he, I am the Messiah, she goes back and, and, and tells those people and, and they come out and say, Jesus, stay with us. As we look at John 4, 39 through 42, it says, and many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you have said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. So more than Paul, Groom, more than myself, more than Nathan, more than any book you can read, more than listening to your, the culture, more than even listening to yourself, we have to come to Jesus for the ultimate truth. These people were, they believed because of her testimony, but even more so, they believed because they heard it from Jesus. All of scripture is God-breathed, and all of it points to Jesus. So, do we look to him as we read this, as we read scripture? And do we not trust on what other people are saying? So, worship is internal. It cannot be seen. Worship in the spirit is initiated by God, and it is meant to point back to God, not to ourselves. These commands of Jesus to to worship truly in spirit and in truth brought me to a question, and this is the question I ask you. Can we worship with, without one or the other? Can we hear the gospel and be changed, receiving it, essentially being convicted of truth, which is that God is perfect, that he sent his son to die for us, and that through him we can have righteousness? We believe that as truth, but as we talk about the scripture being truth, do we realize that we need both together and they cannot work separately? I want you to turn with me one more verse that we'll look at in closing. Ephesians 6. And this is important. Ephesians 6. Paul is talking to the Ephesians and encouraging them to put on the, um, the armor of God. In verse 17, he says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Take the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Paul's spoken several times about that next corner for Missio Dei Church. We've identified the fact that we need to understand more about who the Spirit is. But if we are not in the Word, if we are not regular, regularly reading this, the, the truth, the Bible, and, and, and learning truth and growing in truth, we render the Spirit ineffective. If we want to be true worshipers of God, we have to regularly be in the Bible. We can go on and, and talk more about what the Spirit does and who the Spirit is, but if we are not regularly reading the Word, the Spirit will be useless. The Spirit will be ineffective. We may do church, but it won't be inspired by the Spirit. So how is your life in the Word? Are you allowing the Holy Spirit to work? 
And this is something that we each individually have to wrestle with. But for those, for those of you that are married and those of you that have families, men, I'm going to press in on you a little bit. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul tells the men to love their, hus- lo- love their wives as Christ loved the church and to wash them with water in the word. It is our main duty as husbands to lead our families just to the scripture. And you don't have to have perfect understanding, but it may just look like saying, hon, let's read a little bit. Or what are you learning in the word? For those of you that are single or not married, if you're looking to be married, are you looking for somebody that will encourage you, that will care more about your spiritual life than about your life physically? I have a friend who is a youth pastor back in Iowa. And they go on a, on a trip to uh, Rose, uh, Rosebud Indian Reservation every year, and he takes his students. And last year, they built uh, around a shed. He's a landscape architecture, uh, field turf management major. So he, they, they put all these beautiful shrubs in. They planted new grass. It looked beautiful. And when I talked to him this year after they came back, he had mentioned the sadness that he had when he came back the following year, and it was dead. It had not been taken care of. This is our life in the spirit. If we are not watering ourselves with the word of God, our our spiritual life, we will continue to be thirsty. We will continue to try to fill up our lives with things in this world that will never satisfy us. So, in closing, the question that I struggle with right now is the idols that I see in my life. And you each have them. And how do I deal with those? And this comes back to the idea of who Jesus was, that he was fully God, fully man. That on the cross, as he hung there with nails in his arms and in his feet, he took the punishment for our sins, and three days his body laid rotting in a grave. On that third day, he rose in the spirit. He became alive. And the fact is that those sins that are in your life, those idols in your life, scripture says that if you have believed the gospel and repented, that 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 same power is available to you. That same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Those sins that he died for on the cross could not hold him down because of God's spirit. God is more powerful than your sin. And it is that same power that rose Jesus from the dead that you have available to you every day to live in and to worship God with. So the result of worshiping God in spirit and truth is satisfaction. Verse 14. Jesus says, But whoever drinks of the water I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So the result of worshiping God in truth and spirit is that we are satisfied in him above all other things. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for initiating worship in us. We thank you for your word that speaks truth into our lives and for making us alive to you. 
And Lord, we pray that your spirit would be poured out amongst us in this congregation and that we would have an increased passion to worship you with all of our lives, not just on Sundays, but with all of our lives. That we would worship you inwardly and not just by the things we do. Lord, we thank you that you make us alive. Amen. So, several years later, before Jesus went to the cross, he, he celebrated a meal with his disciples. And this meal was an allusion to him being the, the Passover lamb. And he took the bread, and breaking it, he said, this is my body, broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. He took the cup of blessing and pouring it out, he said, this is the blood of my new covenant. Pour it out for you. As we come to celebrate communion, this is a, a time for those who have confessed with your mouth Believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior. This is a celebration and a remembrance and a participation in that fact. That you have new life, you have living water within you. So, as you come to the table, look at your heart, look at yourself, repent of those sins, and remember what happened at the cross. Would those who are serving communion please come forward?